There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach specializing in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. We have a wonderful guest today. Rear Admiral Tom Lynch is my classmate from the great Naval Academy class of 1964. At Navy, Tom was active in sports, especially football, where he lettered three times and was captain of the great 1963 Navy team. He was also the brigade heavyweight boxing champion. Tom's Naval service focused on surface warfare, culminating in his taking command of the USS Eisenhower Battle Group during the course of Operation Desert Shield. He also served as Chief of Navy Legislative Affairs and for three years was Superintendent of the United States Naval Academy. Tom retired in 1995 and since then has pursued a very successful business career primarily in mortgage banking. So welcome, Tom, to It's All About Skills. Thank you very much, Charlie. It's great to be with you. Go Navy, beat Army. You got it, Tom. Boy, I'll tell you, we're going to say that a few times. Okay, but to, uh, to, re- to start, let's go back a few years. Tell us where you grew up and what led you to go to the Naval Academy. Well, I have an interesting background there. I, I grew up uh, in Lima, Ohio. Uh, my, neither of my parents had gone to college, but we had five in the family, and their goal was to have all five children go to college. And uh, by the time I came along, I was number two, my little brother about six years older, and uh, he spent what money there was for his college education. And so when it came my turn, there was no money in the piggy bank, but uh, I was a big kid, good student. As it turned out, uh, I received some scholarship offers, uh, attention anyhow, for football in a small parochial school in Northwest Ohio. But uh, Notre Dame brought me down for a weekend. And uh, after that weekend there, uh, after sitting down with the coach after mass on a Sunday, we're going to give you an an academic scholarship. Wow, I'm going to Notre Dame. Uh, A few weeks later, the Big Ten rolled in and they said that academic scholarship at Notre Dame's a few hundred dollars. We're talking about full room and board tuition for uh, four years. So now I'm thinking Purdue and I'm thinking Northwestern because I wanted to be an engineer. I didn't really know what that was, except that I thought engineers made the most money. But previously to this, in my uh, fall of my junior year, Life Magazine had come to the home and on the cover was General Montgomery, the British Admiral of World War II. And inside was an article about Pete Dawkins, All-American football player, Rhodes Scholar, Captain of the Corps of Cadets at West Point. 
And at my age, I can't remember what happened yesterday most days, but I can remember 60 years ago, everything being crystal clear, talking to my mother, I now know what I want to do. I want to go to West Point. I want to be somebody like Pete Dawkins. And uh, she says, Tommy, you need to have, we have no political connections. So, you know, that's not in the realm of possibility. We have to know the congressman. And I said, okay, fine, it's back to Notre Dame. Well, now flip a year and uh, we put on a science fair in our school my senior year. I was president of the JETS, the Junior Engineering Technical Society. And uh, one of the judges was Jack Jennings, class of 47 Naval Academy, engineer, Westinghouse, Lyme, Ohio. And after the science fair, he came up to me and he says, Tom, have you ever considered going to the Naval Academy? And I said, oh, Mr. Uh, Jennings, you don't understand. I mean, you got to know somebody. You got to have political connections. He said, look, you uh, write to Congressman William McCullough, 4th District of Ohio, tell him of your interest in the Naval Academy and send your board scores to the Naval Academy, which I did. And a few weeks later, Coach Rick Forzano, the assistant football coach, was on the front door, loved the man. He died last year. I spoke, uh, I gave a eulogy at his, at his funeral. Uh, he was like a father to me, just a fantastic human being. And I love him and the entire family. And, uh, but I've been so, and he was dapper. He was articulate. He was, and my dad, of course, he saw, he had always told me, use football as a means to an end, but never the end in itself. And so I knew I had to get a quality education, but to have the opportunity to play division one football on top of it, that's just icing on the cake. And then my dad also saw security. Uh, and so, uh, he was all for the Naval Academy, so much so that uh, I can remember, like I say, I can re do remember sitting at the kitchen table trying to fill out a letter of intent, uh, uh, offers a letter of intent for the Big Ten. And uh, my dad walked by and said, what are you doing? I said, well, dad, this is a letter of intent to the Big Ten. So you're not going to the Big Ten, you're going to the Naval Academy. I, the coach said, I'm going to get the appointment. I don't have the appointment. This just says, <laughs> Purdue or Northwestern would like me to choose one if I should go there so they can stop recruiting and, and they can pick up somebody else. He said, I said, you're going to Naval Academy, tear that up. Yes, sir. So I could have wound up in Lima, Ohio, digging ditches, but I wound up fortunately at the Naval Academy, not knowing the difference between the Army and the Navy. And, uh, and I look at, and you know, I, I had no uh, Military in the family. I'm the first member of my family, uh, only member of my family to serve in uniform. Well, I had my, my son became a JAG officer uh, after me, but uh, uh, we had nobody in the family, no military experience. And uh, I walked in the Naval Academy as you did. Uh, I think it was like the 5th of July. I think I left home on the 4th yep. of July, took a train from Lima, Ohio to Washington, D.C., took a bus from D.C. to, to Annapolis, Maryland, the bus station there, walked in my little bag, scared to death. <laughs> and uh, and I really didn't know the difference between the Army and the Navy, but I'm not a quitter. And as you know, the plebe year, you, you want to quit many times during plebe year, but I didn't. And, uh, and I graduated and we had a four-year obligation. And my intent was to spend four years and uh, get back to Ohio. But after I graduated, I married my high school sweetheart and we were married for 46 years before she died in, uh, in 2010. But uh, uh, and then I wound up with 32 years on active duty and uh, because I found it to be a very rewarding, challenging, demanding, satisfying profession. And uh, I feel just so fortunate in my life, uh, the things that have happened to me and the things I've been able to do uh, because of that fateful day when 
Jack Jennings said, have you ever considered going to the Naval Academy? Well, back in 1960, 1959, well, actually. Well, Tom, and, I got to tell you, I didn't know this, but both of us, we have something in common. We were both Army fans before, <laughs> we, before we went to the Naval Academy. Well, we changed colors in a hurry, didn't we? Let me tell you something else. I was, uh, as you know, as you mentioned, I was uh, Chief of Legislative Affairs for the Navy. And uh, back in those days, uh, Bill Cohen was a senator from Maine. And, uh, and, and, and uh, Joe Biden, as it turns out, the senator from Delaware. And uh, Bill Cohen and Pete Dawkins were close personal friends. And Biden and Cohen had the build-down proposal between us and the Soviet Union. I guess this is in the early 80s. I can't remember exactly the dates. But, uh, and uh, we had, because they were taking military aircraft, they, had a, they were going over to meet people in the Kremlin to say that, you know, you've got so, so many thousands of missiles. We've got so many thousands of nuclear uh, warheads. That's all just, we're not saying you have to do away with yours. We're not going to do away with ours. Just build down. I mean, the lesser, the better in the world that, in which we live. And so that was a proposal that we were going over there to, to discuss, the, discuss it with the Soviets. And, uh, and uh, we're flying over the Atlantic. And uh, uh, Pete Dawkins was a guest of Bill Cohen's. And I went up to Pete and I said, Pete, you're the reason I'm on this plane right now. <laughs> and I gave him the story <laughs> when he was at West Point and uh, what that meant to me. But anyhow, uh, it's amazing. Well, you wound up at the Naval Academy and your, your principal activity at the Naval Academy, although you did a lot of different things when you're a real leader there, but you became, you, you know, you became a real leader on the football team, you know, and, and uh, that great experience uh, of Navy football during uh, you know, the great class of 64. Tell us a little bit about that experience, about it, particularly uh, something we share both uh, about participating in those great Navy victories over Army. Well, back in those days, uh, uh, I have so many great memories with Navy football. I mean, first of all, the team, my teammates were like brothers. We've stayed together all of these years. I was a captain of the team, so I felt a responsibility to keep the team together. I didn't want to lose that brotherhood. And so I write personal notes out when, when early on, and now we have a group email with the internet. It makes it so much easier. But uh, we, uh, we were plebes in 1960 at the Naval Academy. We had our plebe football team. The, the, football, the plebes did not play varsity. And usually back in those days, it was one platoon football. I mean, uh, you, have, you played your best 11 guys, and then uh, they needed a rest or a breather, you brought in your next best 11 guys. So only 23, 22, 24, 25 guys ever played for the, during the game. And they went off, you went offense, defense, uh, kickoff, special, you know, punts, everything. And uh, as you'll remember, our freshman year, the Navy had Joe Bellino, the team went nine and one and uh, lost to Missouri in the Orange Bowl. And that next year, my, our sophomore year, there really was not much in the senior class. There's a couple of guys, uh, Johnny Hewitt, the captain, Greg Matthew, All-American and Carl Fink, but not too many guys from the class of 62 uh, made a contribution to that team in the team of uh, 61. And so it gave an opportunity for our class, myself and our classmates as sophomores to get some playing time, as did the juniors. So we were predicted to have a 3-7 record, we had a 7-3 record in 1961. So now we're on summer cruise and doing our summer activities and we're out there together and we're saying, what bowl are we gonna go to? We were this good last year. Now we've got 
the juniors are going to be seniors. We're going to be juniors. We've got a uh, kid by the name of Staubach and a good group of sophomores coming up, freshmen coming up. Wow, uh, let's just pick the bowl. And back in those days, there were four bowls, uh, cotton, sugar, rose, and uh, orange, and that was it. Uh, today, there's a plethora, a plethora of, of uh, as you know, of, of bowl games. But back in those days, it was pretty significant to go to a bowl game. And, uh, and we're thinking, yeah, let's, let's go to the Sugar Bowl because we've, we've all had uh, flight training down in Pensacola and we spent some weekends in New Orleans and man, that'd be a good place to go. Well, as it turned out, uh, we wound up a 5-5 record that year because again, take it a day at a time, a step at a time, you start thinking about the future, you get a little complacent, you don't work quite as hard. All of these things came to play. And primarily, I think it was leadership more than anything on that team. But uh, we wound up 5-5. Five, five. And uh, the, the last game before Army was at Southern Cal. And Southern Cal was like Alabama today. I mean, they were practically a pro team. And we went out there in the Coliseum. It was like the, the, uh, uh, the Christians to the Lions. I mean, it was, uh, it was us against Southern Cal out there. And we lost that game 13 to seven, but we really beat them on the field. We were down in there, down they fumbled on the, uh, as he crossed the end zone. If you had a replay today, that would have been a touchdown. But back in those days, it was not, it was called a fumble. And uh, we were in their, in their territory almost the whole entire second half, but we lost the game, but that gave us, wow. We just played the number one team in the country and we should have beaten them. We felt that we should have won that game. So we went in that Army game, beat Army 34 to 12. And then uh, that gave us, now my, our classmates, the class of 64, we are all seniors on the 63 team. And we got a good crop of juniors coming up now. Uh, Pat Donnelly and Roger Staubach and Skip Orr and all of those guys, Pat Feldman, all these guys are great players, Henderson, and, um, and a good group of sophomores too. So we went in, hey, we're going to take it a day at a time. And, and the, the biggest honor I've ever had in my life was being selected by my teammates to be captain of that team. I, and, but Tom, uh, I want to tell you, you were the right person at that time to be captain of that football team. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Charlie, but because uh, that's the biggest honor in my life. And uh, so uh, we went in and we took it right from day one. We're going to work extra hard. We're spending, we're, we're getting early at practice. We're, we're leaving late at practice. We're always doing that extra effort. We're thinking of We're thinking about the team. We're thinking about our season, taking a day at a time, a, a play at a time. And uh, so as it worked out, uh, we were, uh, let's see, we were uh, eight and one uh, going into uh, with our last game of the season, we won that. So we won eight, eight games. We lost one to SMU at SMU. Uh, and, but other than that, we're eight and one. That was a 32-28 year. But anyway, we lost it. We lost what? We were eight and one going into Army. Our motto that year was drive for five. Uh, no one had beaten uh, in the series between Army and Navy. So we evenly balanced. It was back in the early 1900s that I think an Army team had won five in a row. But nobody in modern time had done that. So it was drive for five. We go in the, uh, we get preparing. We, had a, we always had two weeks off before, before the Army game. We're preparing for that when that fateful day on 22 November 1963, we're sitting in class. The professor comes in and says the president has been shot. Uh, and then uh, half an hour later, the president is dead. I mean, it was uh, all of us, uh, it was so indelibly, indelibly imprinted on our minds and our hearts and souls today 
that fateful moment when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. You had Camelot, Camelot all that hope. Uh, he was a PT-109 guy. He was Navy at heart. He would always send a uh, telegram before the uh, Army-Navy game that, that uh, you know, as Commander-in-Chief, I cannot take sides, but I'm pleased to know that I'll be on the winning. He always crossed the field at halftime. I'm pleased to see that I'll be on the winning side at the end of the game. So, oh, he probably said just the opposite to Army, but we weren't quick enough to figure that one out. But uh, so anyhow, uh, that was such a blow. <clears throat> and then immediately uh, the word was uh, the game has been uh, canceled and hey, we understood that he's our commander in chief. Uh, there'll be no army Navy game. Our season is over. Uh, and then a couple of days later, by Saturday, I think we got the word that Jackie had said, no, the president would have wanted this game to be played. So we played it up in Philadelphia. We uh, meet uh, army 21 to 15. That's when they ran out of time with that much to go, but not that they would have scored. But, hey, Tom, uh, just a second. I just yeah. want to ask you a question about that because you were down on the field in that final few seconds of that last Army-Navy game in the fall of 63, when Army had the ball on the one or two yard line. Like the six inch yard line. <laughs> six inch, what happened? I mean, I watched that thing on YouTube. You were right in the center of the field. Now, what went on? Now, what happened was uh, they scored to make it 21 to 15. And then they got the onside kick and they had about four minutes, yep. but their whole philosophy was to take the maximum time on every play to keep Roger Staubach off the field. Yep. And so they came down and they got down there about the one yard line and uh, really, really Stitchway was their captain class of 65. West good ball Point. player, good ball player. Great ball player, great athlete, great personal friend uh, today. I mean, we were, we we're very close. And uh, he, he went looked over to the, the uh, referee and he says, I can't hear. And so the referee called the timeout. They went back in the huddle. And then when they uh, broke the huddle, they came back out and I could see it. I'm in, now it's, it's dark out, the lights are on. I'm in my linebacker position in the end zone and it's 11, 10, nine, and they're coming up to the line. And he looks over to the official again, but this time the official doesn't call the timeout. And so by the time he got back down, he realized that got back down, boom, the, the, the um, it's three, two, one, zero. And I tried to time it so I could get in there. Uh, they couldn't get the playoff. And the, and the referee came in and blowing the headlinesman came in blowing the whistle. And for that stark moment, I thought, oh, my goodness, he's going to call me off sides. I'll be the all-time Navy GOAT. I'll never make JG. And uh, <laughs> that's it, boys. The game's over. Now, oh, I Tom, I can remember that. I was uh, thrilled on the sidelines. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, so it's uh, when I talk to my Army friends, they, they're still uh, chafe about that one. And, uh, oh, I know. and then I, I, I had a little salt to the wound. But I said, oh, and it turns out the headlines was retired Chief Gene Baruti. I don't know if that's true or not. But I like to say that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. And then oh. uh, a guy by the name of Michael Conley. Uh, called me, uh, I, mean, I, I don't even know now, maybe six, eight, ten years ago, and he wanted to write a book about our Navy football team in 63, and he did that called The President's Team, and it's a, it's, it talks about everything that went through the season, and then his whole, and what was going on in the world around us, and so people don't understand, but back in those days, the Army-Navy game 
was like the uh, Super Bowl is today. Absolutely. I mean, 110,000 people, national TV, which is a big deal. That game was the first time they did replay TV. And, uh, and so he said that, you know, the president was assassinated on the 23rd, was buried on the 30th. And our game was delayed from the 30th of November to the 7th of December. I forgot to mention that it was delayed a week. And then, but that was kind of like closure for the American people. Now we need to get on with our lives. And uh, so uh, uh, Mike, Michael Conley has been a close friend ever since, uh, ever since then. He's written that book 10, 15 years ago. I don't know now, but uh, anyhow, uh, that was, uh, uh, and then, as I said before, then we all uh, graduated and we went into the Marine Corps or the Navy and submarines, uh, surface, uh, aviation, uh, whatever it was. And, uh, and we had such a close bond uh, among us as a true brotherhood that uh, we've now, I can tell you where every guy is uh, who's survived. I can tell you the, the spouse, uh, children, and uh, we get together every five years here at the Naval Academy. That's fantastic. Now, Tom, you know, aside from football, and you were a mainstay at the Naval Academy and a legend, basically, from our class of 64, but what would you, in looking back, say that what were the most important skills that you learned, not only from football, but as a midshipman at the Naval Academy? Well, I think first and foremost, you learn discipline, you learn time management, uh, you learn uh, teamwork, uh, camaraderie, uh, uh, putting yourself last, uh, caring about others, uh, and realizing that, you know, I think early on, one of the uh, first definitions of leadership that we learned there is know your stuff. You had to know your stuff be a leader, step up and take charge when the situation demands it and take care of your people. Uh, we learned that early on. And I think so many things that uh, we do at the Naval Academy, it's almost by osmosis, but we call that the leadership laboratory of the Navy. And uh, I think the things that we did day in and day out, I mean, discipline for your room. Remember though, the in charge of room, the old I-Corps, you know, and any dust in the room, you're at I-Corps that week. I mean, you got, uh, you got fried. And, you got and two days after duty. I can remember being so, uh, so excited. The fact that I could, I'm a kid from the Midwest and be in my first game uh, against Notre Dame, playing in, playing in South Bend, Rockney Stadium, out there. My family's going to be out there. My sweetheart's going to be out there. Oh, my goodness, it's everything in the world. And uh, standard attention and the, the uh, probably some lieutenant uh, was officer of the day. And doing the inspection, I made sure my shoes and everything in my uniform was perfectly pure. And I even bought a bought a brand new uh, uh, chin strap for my you know, on our on our on our, uh, on our cover, and uh, it had an Irish pen, a little thing sticking out. But yeah, and uh, he looked up at ten and two, <laughs> ten demerits, ten, ten demerits, and two hours of extra duty. Two two hours of extra duty, and I said. I walked down those steps to get on the charter bus to fly out to uh, South Bend. And I'm thinking, you know, I may not make it back here alive, but if I do, <laughs> I got to march with that damn rifle for two hours. <laughs> and I did. So, you know, so I think that's, uh, we call that humbleness. It calls it, uh, hey, uh, sincerity, honesty, candidness. I mean, all these things that, uh, 
you know, and, and the first thing they do is as, as a midshipman, they shave your head and uh, we don't care where you're from. We don't care what school you went to. We don't care what color you are, what your creed is, what your religion, it doesn't make any difference. We're all here for a common mission, a common purpose, support and defend the United States of America and do something for our country. Yeah. I say that every midshipman has ever gone to the Naval Academy. It's down here innately for whatever reason they said they went to the Naval Academy. Free education. Oh, I uh, I want to be an aviator, aviator like my dad. I like I like marching. I like you know, wearing a uniform. I like the girls there. I don't know what it is. Deep down, there is an innate sense I want to be in a position to do something for my country, for my fellow man. And I think that uh, just by osmosis, just by being there, and just by being uh, a part of that, where you're something, uh, part of something bigger than yourself. I think that's uh, that, that's in so many ways, uh, in so many ways, sort of uh, intuitively, the uh, the academy tries to make that happen in daily life. That's why the brigade, the seniors at the Naval Academy, the first class midship, they run the entire brigade. Uh, I mean, everything you do is put you in a challenge you, challenge you academically, challenge you athletically, challenge you morally as a person, challenge you in leadership ways. And we as human beings, we want to be challenged. We want to have discipline. We want to do be the best that we can be. And uh, so many things that we think, oh, I could never do that. Uh, uh, we just opened up the student athlete, uh, the Twilliger Center at the Naval Academy. It's a beautiful building uh, there at the Ricketts Hall. And uh, there's a big, big uh, banner up there. Who will I become? And it's more for the young people coming, the Ron Twilligers who gave the Naval Academy over 50 million. Uh, but Ron Twilligers of the future come there and say, who will I, can I measure up? to all these great athletes? Can I measure up to all these distinguished graduates? Can I measure up to all these wonderful people and these midshipmen that I see that are giving their lives for their country? Uh, so I think being a part of that, it's just, uh, uh, I can't say there's one particular thing, but all these things are come uh, become part of it. Tom, uh, yeah. when you graduated, you went Navy line and you went Navy surface. And uh, very briefly, tell us a little bit about your experience up to the point where you were selected for flag rank. And particularly, what were the most important skills that you felt were critical to you during this period in your naval career? You know, not, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not, so much, uh, not so much about each particular point where you went along in your career, but what made you the leader you are? You know, I don't really know that. I know that uh, I always learn from my parents. You work as hard as you can, you pray as hard as you can, and leave the rest up to God. And so, in a way, uh, when I was challenged, when I had a major decision, when I was arguing a decision, uh, uh, trying to make a decision within myself, I always worked as hard as I could on whatever it was, and then I prayed on it, and then you forget it. And I tell the young people here, I'm now uh, uh, executive chairman of a company, a mortgage lending company for veterans. We've got 750 young people here. The average age is 26. And, uh, and I tell them at age 79, pushing 80, I can tell you I have no regrets in life because I look back and I say, could I have been a better son for my parents? Probably. Could, may, may I have, could I have been a better parent for my children? Maybe. Could I have gone higher in the Navy? 
Maybe. Could I have made more money in my maybe? You know what? No regrets whatsoever because I know I gave it 110% whatever I was doing. I focused on the moment. I focused on the people I was with and I never looked back. And we learned something at the Naval Academy. There's two little things to help answer your question maybe is two things we learned at the Naval Academy very early on. Those Latin words up above the bronze doors there in the chapel, non cb said patria. It's not about self. It's about country. You're not for yourself. You're for your country when you're wearing that uniform. And then what I'm going through is a young ensign in the Navy. Uh, anything, I, everything, I always watched the guy that was running the show. And why is he making those decisions? Why is this happening? What could I do better? When I get command of my destroyer, what can, how can I be better? And, 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 uh, and, I, and, and, and I finally got command. Uh, one of the highlights of my command, my, my active duty career was having command of a frigate, uh, uh, USS Truett, uh, from, 19, from August of 77 to August of 80. I had the ship for three years, and it was a post-Vietnam uh, malaise. Uh, we had that problem. We had drug problems. We had race problems. We had alcohol problems. We had a shortage of petty officers, and we had a shortage of ships. So I was gone from home port for my family and we were gone for 30 of 36 months. I had that ship. And I remember when I had, when I was, when I was said, I relieve you, sir, I take command of this ship. Something just came over me and just realized I've got responsibility now. I am totally accountable for anything that happens aboard this ship, for any one of these 300 sailors, anything on board the ship or ashore or anything else. And, and, and you felt, uh, wow. And then I said, and, and I realized after a few months, every thought, word, and deed that I had, I was thinking first, what effects are going to have on the ship? What effects are going to have on my shipmates, my men? And then, what's, oh, it's raining. I better get an umbrella. I mean, then you worry about yourself. Every great leader I've ever known thinks that way. What effects are going to have on my organization? What effects are going to have on my colleagues? Then I worry about myself. As a parent, what effect is it going to have on my spouse, my children, my family? And I worry about myself. Coach the same way. Team, teammate. Uh, Bill Belichick had me speak to the uh, Patriots a couple of seasons, uh, the season they won the Super Bowl. And I started off by saying, how many, and, and you know, there's a couple hundred people there in the, in the auditorium. And I said, how many here? Uh, I said, I'm flying up here today with my grandson, uh, Charlie boy, 16-year-old Charlie boy. And I said, Charlie, who do you think is going to be in the Super Bowl this year? He said, well, besides the Patriots? And I said, just think, about 90% of American football aficionados uh, feel that you guys are going to be in the Super Bowl. How many in this room? If I asked, how many in this room are going to be, feel you're going to be in the Super Bowl? I'm sure every hand would go up. But I can tell you this, unless you think like Coach Belichick thinks, that he's got, he wakes up every morning, every thought, word, and deed, what effects are going to have on my team? What effects are going to have on my players? And then I worry about myself. Unless every man in this room, every coach, every scout, every trainer, every uh, the guy that takes care of the lawn out there on the, on the stadium grass, and every one of you players, you got if you if you don't think that way, you're not going to be in the Super Bowl, and that will get you in the Super Bowl. Bill was so kind; he was at the Naval Academy when uh, Coach Rosano died, and had a, a, a recognition of Coach Rosano and Coach Welsh, and a lot of football players were back. And Bill Belichick took me came back and. And he gave me, he said, you know, we still use that ship, ship, self philosophy. At, uh, and they won the Super Bowl that year. I didn't get a Super Bowl ring. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, just, I think, Tom, a lot of people don't know 
that Bill Belichick wandered the sidelines during that great fall of 1963 when you guys were winning the all those games I should I I should have said that but 1963 Billy was a 10 year old kid running around our locker room that's right and uh, and he and uh, Rusty and and Red Romo's son Rusty uh, who now has a grandson playing but uh, Red Romo was a trainer for 40 years but uh, so Bill Belichick is and I are, are, are close friends because he he knows, he knows the Naval Academy very well. His father was a tenure professor in the phys ed department and, and ran our scout, scout team, coached the scout team. And he and Bill, as it turns out, he and Bill would always scout the team we're gonna play the next week uh, and, and then give us the scouting report. Steve, uh, Bill's father who passed some years ago, but Steve Belichick was revered here at the school and always gave us a scouting report on Monday night uh, after you know, play the game on Saturday, Sunday we'd have all Monday we'd have a light workout and sweats, then go over to the old boathouse over there with the in room, and uh, we'd have a, a meal. Oh, no, first of all, Coach Harden would go through the film one time, the game film one time, pointing out some errors and stuff. And then we'd have a, a meal, and then back to the projection room where Steve Belichick would give us a scouting report on the team we we're going to play that week, and then back in the bus and back in the hall, Bancroft Hall for seven fifty study hour check and that was our that was always our monday and so we every monday we had a personal time with steve belichick whose oh. father was bill belichick and so yeah we're very close those are great memories you know now what 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 really amazes me is with all this experience that you had in the navy and command of a of a, of a, a dlg and so forth and then you were also the uh command of the uh, the battle group in the course of De- Desert Shield, all of a sudden you found yourself walking back into the Naval Academy as superintendent. What did that feel like, Tom? All of a sudden, you know, you, you know, from years and years and years ago, you took the oath like the rest of us, and I was in the same group, but you, you took the oath, and then all of a sudden you walked back in the door, and you are the soup. What did that feel like? Tell us about that. Yeah, I'd say it's a uh, it's a real uh, uh, upper. I mean, it was really just fantastic. It was really a, a great thrill. Uh, it's something you know when you go, you know, it's something you don't aspire to, but if it happens, you're just so happy that it happened, and uh, couldn't ask for a better assignment. Uh, but it's like walking into a time machine, because the midshipmen don't change, the buildings don't change, the professors are all old and gnarly like they were when we were there. So it's like. <laughs> It's like you're the only one that changed, and so you walk in, and uh, and then after a while, I thought, you know, I remember that superintendent being all those superintendents were those old guys, and I don't, I'm not an old guy, <laughs> but but probably what happened is, uh, you know, in the modern Navy, we probably promote a little more rapidly than they did back in those days. So uh, I'm probably much younger than those guys. Well, I look it up. No, no, I was the same age as our superintendents were when we were there. And of course, uh, you have fond members, Uncle Charlie, Admiral Kirkpatrick, and and uh, Charlie Minter, who was uh, Captain Charlie Minter, who was a commandant. Then became when Charlie had his heart attack our senior year, he became uh, the uh, superintendent. And uh, just fond members, such great people we had there. And the professors were always there to help you. And the largest classroom, 15 midshipmen, and you still so you had almost personalized instruction. And uh, it was just a great and wonderful time. But uh, you see the changes, you know, when we were there, we smoked. 
these kids don't smoke. Uh, when we were there, we ran for punishment. Today, they run for pleasure, morning, noon, and night. And uh, we never lifted weights. And, uh, and, they, and they lift weights uh, year round. So uh, it's, uh, it's uh, much different, but even much better. And, 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 and of course, we all say we've had the last plebe year. But, and now we have 27% uh, of the brigade are women. Uh, we have a lot of diversity in the brigade. And, uh, and I see these young people today as motivated and as charged up and as positive as you and I ever were with our class. So it was really pretty fantastic. Fantastic, Tom. And now, then there, then there came that day when you hung it up and you left the Navy and you retired from the Navy and you moved on to another chapter in your life and your post-Navy career. Tell us a little bit about the, what you did, and not so much in terms of the details, but the similarities and differences in the kind of skills you needed to be successful as you proceeded from your very successful Naval career to your successful business career. Well, I, again, it's, in my case, I thought it was serendipity. I was very fortunate. Uh, things just happened. I, uh, I spent uh, 32 years on active duty, almost 32, 31 and a half, something like that. And, uh, uh, and, I, and I said two things. Uh, one, I'm not going back to Ohio. Uh, and, and, and two, uh, I'm not going north of Virginia because I don't like the cold weather. Uh, <laughs> so when it, came, when it came time to retire, <clears throat> I uh, retired on 1 November 1995, and uh, uh, I had the retirement date coming up. Uh, prior to that, in May of 95, I, <clears throat> I was introduced to a company in Philadelphia called Safeguard Scientifics. I met a gentleman by the name of Pete Musser. He was the chairman, founder, and CEO, uh, and he died. It was a public company, New York Stock Exchange, still is today. SFE on the, on the New York. And uh, through a classmate and teammate, Jim Ownsworth, who was the general counsel that he had spent uh, almost 10 years in the submarine force, got out, got a law degree, and now he's the general counsel at Safeguard Scientifics. And he told me, you know, Tom, you need to meet these people up here. And I was at the Pentagon at the time. And he said, uh, you know, at, at some point in time, you're going to have to retire. And so uh, I really wasn't intending to retire. But uh, I met them in May, fantastic company, fantastic people. Uh, it was a private equity company doing a lot of venture capital. And uh, in July, uh, I decided to retire. And, and you, you, you know, you were conditioned to give the military six months. Uh, and so I pulled one November out of thin air. I was having a, having a conversation with uh, uh, people, uh, Mike Borda, who was the CNO at the time. And because I was the director of the Navy staff, and uh, uh, the fleet was out was not a possibility. So if I'm not going to fleet, then I'm going to go ahead and retire. So I picked one November out of thin air, and on uh, the 31st of October, uh, 1995, uh, I was getting ready to pack up and leave the office about nine o'clock at night. And our classmate Joe Preer was the vice chief, called me over and said, "Hey, why don't you stop by on your way before you leave?" And so he and I had a beer together that night. I went home, 
uh, had dinner and 5.30 the next morning, drove up to Wayne, Pennsylvania, because uh, Pete Musser had offered me a position. And what they did, uh, we invested in companies, grew them and took them public. And, uh, and so I found what I was doing at Safeguard was no different than what I was doing in the Navy. You know, you're working with people, you have your goals, you have your milestones, you've got personnel issues, you have financial issues, you've got legal issues. And it was sort of like, an, I guess what you're doing now, we're more like executive coaches. And as long as we're working, we're working with the CEOs. My boys have had about 30 or 40 companies, now about 30 companies in the portfolio. And we have about three or four of us, we split up the companies and just work for them until they become public, became public company entities. And we bring them out on the NASDAQ. And so I found what I was doing in the Navy no different than what I was doing in the civilian world. Uh, although I jokingly said I couldn't spell venture capital, but uh, I just had to be there during that period of time because we bought about 15 companies public in the six, seven years I was there with the company and then had an opportunity to run a company called CompuCom Systems, uh, CMPC on the NASDAQ, which is the uh, last of the uh, computer resellers standing today. And I uh, went down to da uh, Dallas, Texas, I was president chief operating officer down there for about, uh, about a year or so, turned the company around uh, from a, a product company to a service company. And I uh, feel very proud about that. That still survived. And, uh, and then when I got out in, in, uh, in uh, 2001, 2002, I decided to uh, uh, go into pro bono and charitable the rest of my life. And uh, two things happened in succession. First of all, uh, I got very much involved in, in charities and from the Red Cross, the National Center for American Revolution, that was Grisha, the Boy Scouts up in Boston, up in Philadelphia and do a lot, many different things, the Naval, Navy, Naval Academy, Catholic Church. When, uh, and, but you quickly learn that nonprofits are primarily fundraisers and everything's by consensus. And I wasn't ready for that. And about that time, my wife started having some serious medical issues. And uh, so we worked out, we, we went through that until uh, uh, in, in uh, 05, excuse me, January of 06. She had another stroke, and this one left her paralyzed and in constant chronic pain for four and a half years until she died. But uh, anyhow, uh, other than that, uh, but I found out the civilian life is no different than, in the, in the, than the military life, except you have in the, in the you uh, obviously you, the, the financial rewards are much different. And, uh, and, and we have a noble purpose. Uh, I found in, in the military, we had a noble purpose. In the civilian world, you run an organization uh, everybody knows who the CEO is. That's the admiral. You know, you know who the XO is. That's the chief operating officer. I mean, it's it's uh, you go right down the line. They've got the hierarchy, just like we have in the military. But uh, so anyhow, uh, I thrived in that. And then uh, after my wife died, I was uh, much involved in uh, boards and uh, president of the Unit League up in uh, uh, for a couple of years up in Philadelphia, which is a very part of that. And when I received a call from the uh, current uh, CEO here, the founder and CEO of New Day USA. And uh, New Day USA is a mortgage lending company. We do VA loans only, so veteran-centric. And when he called me, I said, uh, Rob, uh, he wanted me, wanted me to be on his board. And I said, well, thank you very much, but uh, I don't have the time, I don't have the interest, and I really know nothing about mortgage lending. But uh, he's very persistent and uh, a zealot, and, uh, and I like the gentleman. And so I came down here for the dog and pony, and he went through the presentation when they finished up, and it's primarily cash out refi for, for 
there's 20, 22 million veterans and about 2 million in a situation where they, they like all of us as, as Americans, we have a death, we have a medical issue, we have a divorce, we have uh, kids come home with kids, tuition payments, taking care of parents, wherever it is, and you get behind financially. But you've got that plastic. So you use those credit cards, and then it'll get, then some of us will get to a point where you can't even make, you make just the minimal payments or you'll miss a payment. So the FICO scores or credit scores in the tank, uh, then there, there's equity in their home, and they're, they're really at with, they have no hope. And uh, so they go to the banker to refi the home and do the cash out. And whether it's any of the money center banks, it's Quicken, uh, USAA, PenFed, NFC, anybody will say, but look at that FICO score. And if it's below a certain level, like 690 or something like that, they'll say, sorry, can't help you, pal. Yeah. And, uh, and then they'll come to us. We'll spend that first, that first call, we'll spend 45 minutes. How did you get in that situation? What do you need? It's almost a customized deal. And uh, so we take care of uh, uh, the veteran. Uh, we'll, in fact, we'll go to a 600 FICO score. Uh, and, our, and I said, okay, you do all that, what's your delinquency rate? And at that time, in uh, 2011, the, the uh, delinquency rate was 1.9%. Uh, and uh, today it's 0.75. So mm -hmm. it's almost negative. Because my concern was we get him out of the soup and the family's still gonna have those credit cards. So where's he going to be six months from now? He or she, the veteran. And, but the veteran, they've seen what hell looks like. They're not going back to that. They're so thankful. In fact, I've got 750 people here, young people here, and I've done this before. How many of you had a veteran cry on the phone? Every hand goes up like that. Yeah. So I feel, I feel blessed at this point in time in my life to do what we're doing for the veteran community now. Well, I can tell you one thing is uh, I know you're a spokesman for USAA, and I'm going to give a plug for USAA. Uh, you uh, know, New Day, U New Day USA. Okay, well, uh, well New, Day USA. New Day USA, but, but I'm going to give a plug for USAA, too. Okay, that's fine, yep. Because uh, you and I have been members of that organization for a half a century. Exactly, since '63 or '64, I've you been got a member. It, my friend, you got my it. car insurance, yeah. my home insurance. You got it. You got it. Well, Tom, I'll, I'll tell you, you have been uh, both in the Navy, at the Naval Academy, and in the Navy and post Navy, a model of leadership, and you have been uh, and always will be, uh, you know, a person who people can look at as a is a, a, a model of someone who shows real leadership. And with that in mind, if you were to return now to Lima, Ohio, and you may have in the past, and address the high school graduation to these students that are like you a half century ago, what would be three or four key points that you would tell those students about the challenges they, they, that they face in their career in today's world, the challenges that they face as they strive to preserve our constitutional republic, and you know the kind of skills that they need to meet those challenges. I would say, first of all, Charlie, they need to understand that of the 35 million Americans aged 17 to 24, only 23% of those will be accepted in our military today. High school degree, physically fit, drug-free, felon-free. So you are right now, you young people graduate from high school here, 
from my high school, Lima Central Catholic to Lima, Ohio, you're gonna, you fit that category, but you're only, tw you're only 23%. Your competition is not that difficult out there. To go out and get a degree, you need that education. And to have a four-year education and a reputable degree and a reputable college, now you're in the single digits. So you are the future leadership of this country. You need to understand that right now. And with all the problems we face in this country, all the things that we're gonna, and we're throwing a trillion, a $30 trillion debt on top of you, you and your generation, it's important to you to realize that one, you are you're going to be a future leader of the United States of America. We need your leadership. We need your skills. We need you to be as educated as you possibly can. We need you to accept responsibility. We need you to lead by example. We need you to, to feel accountability for, for your actions and to think, uh, of the, 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 and be thankful for the country in which we live. And we need to protect those values that we have. You need to ingrain that in your children and work with your neighbors. And, uh, and I think that those are probably the most important things that I can think of uh, than just being an empathetic, caring person for the, for the people around you uh, and, uh, and be able to take care of your, your subordinates and take care of your people and your family and your subordinates. And, and, uh, and you too will be a very a successful person. And, uh, and as a result, that will uh, help us survive as a democracy and uh, for all the values that we cherish in this country. And I would second that, Tom, and it's certainly coming from someone who is uh, certainly a model of leadership and something that we learned when we were on the, in the courtyard of Bancroft Hall on the 5th of July, 1960, when we took that oath. Long time ago, Charlie. It's been a while, my friend. So Tom, uh, I wanna thank you so much for being our guest today on It's All About Skills. And I have, uh, I have one last question, and I think you said that somewhat at the beginning. What's the good word? Beat Army. Go Davey, beat Army, you got it, you my got friend. It. You got it. Okay, Tom. Thanks, Charlie. As for me, I'm an internationally certified coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, career crises, and positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me through my websites, charliejetcoaching.com or podcastpq.com if you're interested in positive intelligence. So thank you all for listening today, and we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.